Welcome to Understanding Congress, a podcast about the first branch of government. Congress is a notoriously complex institution, and few Americans think well of it. But Congress is essential to our republic. It's a place where our pluralistic society is supposed to work out its differences and come to agreement about what our laws should be. And that is why we are here to discuss our national legislature and to think about ways to upgrade it so it can better serve our nation. I'm your host, Kevin Kosar, and I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. The topic of this episode is, what is the Congressional Research Service, and what does it do? The guest of this show is me, Kevin Kosar. I spent a little over a decade at the Congressional Research Service, also known as CRS. There I worked as a nonpartisan analyst and also as an acting section research manager. Subsequent to my time at the agency, I was one of the individuals who advocated that Congress make CRS reports available to the public and not just legislators and their staffs. I've also written about CRS quite a bit and the other legislative branch support agencies like CBO and the GAO. But it'd be weird for me to ask myself questions and then answer them on this podcast. So I requested that my colleague, Jaehan Lee, serve as my interlocutor. All right, Jaehan, take it away. All right, let's start simple. What is the Congressional Research Service? Well, the Congressional Research Service is the rare government agency where its name actually accurately describes what it does. It is a research service and also a reference service for Congress. That's its lone client, Congress. So CRS is an agency inside the Library of Congress. So it is a federal government agency, not some sort of private sector research outfit. And its job is to support Congress and to do so by providing nonpartisan research, analysis, legal opinions, and just about anything else that Congress may require. You think about Congress, it's comprised of regular Americans. Anybody can run for Congress. Anybody can become a congressional staffer. And when those people come to Washington, D.C., they're suddenly saddled with this immense responsibility of governing. They have to make laws. They have to oversee executive agencies. They have to respond to lots of constituents. They have to receive interest groups who come through their doors, making demands of them related to policy and spending. Nobody who enters that position is fully equipped to handle it. We're all amateurs when it comes to governing. And CRS plays a critical role in helping those folks govern. So if you're a brand new legislator and you're trying to figure out like, how do I introduce my first bill? I mean, where do I even get this thing drafted? You can call up CRS and they'll say, okay, here are the steps. Here's how you should reach out to legislative counsel within the chamber who can actually put your ideas into a template and grind it through. They can help you on these sort of things. They can teach you the basics of legislative procedure. What's a filibuster? How does a congressional budget process work? They also are a, well, a giant resource for facts and nonpartisan, and this is key, nonpartisan 
analysis. Everybody in D.C., in the private sector, to one degree or another, has an angle, a perspective. Uh, Often, especially when you're talking about interest groups or lobbyists, they have specific policy goals, and they are going to make arguments to persuade you to pick their policies or to support them. CRS doesn't do that. It doesn't tell Congress, here's the policy you should pick. Instead, it says, there are, the, there are options. All of them have benefits and costs. Here are the benefits, here are the costs. Now you, Congress, decide. And that makes them a really special resource. And that's why they are so trusted on Capitol Hill, because they don't have a skin in the game. They're not pushing an agenda. More specifically, what do they do? Like I said, they run training classes to teach you how to be a legislator or staffer. Um, They'll look up facts and figures for you. You just want to get a data point. They write short reports and primers that explain the history of various policies and programs so you as a legislator can understand why this exists and how these these programs and policies have evolved over time. They do so much, so much for Congress. And how many people work at CRS, and how are they different from staff working in the House and Senate? Presently, a little over 600 people work at CRS. So that makes it a really sizable uh, think tank and reference service within the library. But I should put that number within context. About 40 years ago, during the 1980s, CRS had over 900 employees. It had a lot more people power than it does today. And, you know, ask how are they different from staff working in the House and the Senate? CRS staff are civil servants, meaning they are hired on nonpartisan objective criteria, the so-called KSOWs, knowledge, skills, abilities, and other characteristics. It's a fairly rigorous process with lots of, lots of stages where if you want to get a job at CRS, you know, you have to show you got the education credentials, you have to have the research chops, you have to have the, the various skills that you need. You know, one of the things that uh, helped get me a job at CRS was the fact that I had spent four or five years reading congressional documents in the course of producing my dissertation. So I was very familiar with the committee uh, processes for doing oversight and policymaking and the kind of larger legislative arena and how it operates. That's different from Capitol Hill. If you wanna work for a member of the House, member of the Senate, uh, one of the committees, you're gonna be picked with some consideration of your partisanship. That doesn't happen at CRS, not at all, not ever. You know, people who work on Capitol Hill, their jobs are very diverse in nature. I mean, you have some people who are just devoted to constituent service. Their job is not really to think about policy. You have people who are devoted to working on press and public communications. You have folks who do a whole lot of different things. CRS, it's a lot more narrow banded. You have primarily people with academic expertise type training and experience. And of course you have the the critical core of the kind of reference librarians, uh, knowledge services folks. And that's what comprises the agency. Why did Congress create CRS? Well, the story starts at least 100 years ago, uh, around 1914. 
to a degree, what we had going on was this recognition of kind of a, an aspiration of the Enlightenment, which had happened centuries before, which is that reason, facts, analyses should come to bear on governance. Now, we all know Congress is comprised of individuals representing diverse uh, districts and states, and they are very much influenced by parochial interests, people back home. They're influenced and informed very much by interest groups. CRS was created at a time when there was a broader effort to bring facts, analysis, and reason into the legislative process. This kind of got its start in Wisconsin and also New York, where the legislatures there got the idea like, hey, maybe we should have some experts we can rely upon who can give us information we need in order to give us the ability to make smarter decisions and do policy that works better, which, you know, to a degree can uh, help with the eternal goal of a politician getting reelected, make good policy, policy that works and pleases voters, right? So that's when CRS was created in 1914. It was created as the Legislative Reference Service. To a degree, it built off infrastructure that had been created back in 1800. I mean, why did we have a Library of Congress? Answer, there was this idea amongst the founders that it would be good if we looked at some books studied some facts and figures before we legislate. And so that's why the Library of Congress was created initially. But 1914 was a moment where they said, you know what, we should have people in there who are devoted to producing materials that are useful to legislators, such as uh, compilations of statutes about particular topic, you know, maybe tariffs um, or something related to agriculture, like actually typing these sort of things up and having them on hand. And also these people should be available kind of at the beck and call of the legislature as needed. And so that was the, that was the original legislative reference service. Fast forward to 1946, Congress was in the process of clawing back power. You know, the executive branch had grown massively during the Great Depression, uh, New Deal, World War II, Congress in the mid-40s said, we have to reassert ourselves as the first branch. And they did a whole lot of things, but one of which was they beefed up the Legislative Reference Service and started requiring it to have real policy nerds on staff in particular issue areas. And then in the early 70s, after the 1960s, and again, the ballooning of the executive branch, Congress reasserted itself, and it took the, L, the LRS and turned it into the CRS and did a whole bunch of other things to reassert itself. So the CRS we have today was very much created at a time uh, when Congress felt like the executive branch had a whole lot of expertise to draw upon, all the people who work in the many, many agencies over there, and Congress didn't. And knowledge is power, and if you're the legislative branch, you don't want to have to rely on the executive branch for all the information. Um, that puts you in a weak position. So Congress invested in itself by bulking up the CRS and flooding its ranks with experts. Uh, you mentioned during the introduction that there are other legislative branch support agencies. How is CRS like or different from the GAO and the CBO? 
They are alike insofar as they are agencies created to serve Congress. They are staffed with nonpartisan people. These are folks who have expertise of one sort or another that is considered of use in the legislative process. GAO began as an agency that basically followed the money. They were the auditors. They were the ones who were supposed to tabulate where all the dollars being sent out the door by the executive branch went. Later, their mission got expanded to do other stuff. They had to do legal opinions related to the spending of money, you know, bid protests they review. Uh, for example, if you have a contractor bidding on some government project and they think that they got you know, unfairly treated in the course of it, they can file a bid protest and GAO has to take a look at that. Uh, GAO also got involved in doing kind of program evaluation, looking at whether various policies worked. Um, and they have investigative authorities, which means they can go into agencies and basically get their hands on, on data uh, and other materials. Uh, CBO, CBO was created in the early 70s. Um, GAO was created a century ago. CBO was created uh, at that same time, the early 70s, when Congress was reasserting itself, um, pushing back against a president who had you know, thrown so much weight around in terms of uh, you know, budgeting and spending. Uh, CBO, you know, they've got a statutory mission to support Congress in various ways. They've got to produce various estimates and reports related to federal spending and the economy and the revenues coming in. Uh, they also score bills reported from committee, give them kind of a price tag on, you know, what's the estimated uh, costs and what's the estimated, uh, you know, revenues that might be coming in. Uh, CRS, meanwhile, is a bit different. They do a lot of stuff, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, they're the ones running the classes, teaching legislators. They're the ones who act as a daily reference desk. I mean, if you have a question about, I don't know, spending on a particular defense program, you, a congressional staff or a legislator, you're not going to call CBO to ask. You're not going to call GAO to ask because those agencies are really not designed to take lots of requests from individual legislators and staff. Instead, you call up CRS. Like CRS is your help desk. GAO does it sometime, but CRS often will let its people work with a committee or a member of Congress for an extended period of time. In the old days, they used to physically detail people over to uh, committees. But, you know, these days it's more along the lines of, you know, if, if a committee is really looking into something like, I don't know, how to help the ailing U.S. Postal Service, um, that committee can just keep asking you questions and asking you to come over and help them. And they can kind of just gobble up your bandwidth and you, the analyst, will just do that. And that's kind of neat because it allows Congress, uh, when it has various needs, to just call upon the agency, to call upon CRS to flow in. What are the challenges facing CRS today? One of the challenges CRS faces uh, is an eternal one, which is the Hill is a very political place and CRS is a very factual, analytical place. And we know in politics, sometimes, or probably often, facts and analysis can offend people because it challenges their rhetoric. It challenges a 
policy or position they have staked out. And, you know, I've found quotes going back, oh, geez, I want to say back into the 50s, where members of Congress were, you know, lamenting the fact that the agency, then the Legislative Reference Service, um, was a little hesitant to speak clearly about the facts because they didn't want to face blowback. I mean, mind you, the agency is wholly funded by Congress. So obviously you don't want them to cut your budget. So there's this eternal hesitancy to speak too clearly uh, for fear of getting political blowback. Um, Another kind of big picture challenge for the agency is that when CRS was relaunched uh, in the early 70s, that was a time of very strong congressional committees. Committees dominated the policymaking and oversight process, and CRS was set up initially to primarily serve committees. I mean, there used to be in the 70s this exercise where as a new Congress was coming in, CRS was expected to put before uh, Congress a kind of list of the most important policy priorities that Congress should attend to. You know, that just doesn't happen today. Um, So we've evolved to an institution, um, a Senate and a House, a Congress collectively, that's much less committee-driven and much more uh, top-down, led by the speaker, led by the majority leader uh, and their minority counterparts. And it's a much more partisan, polarized environment. It's a lot more transparent environment. It's a lot more uh, contentious environment. And so CRS is in this picture, and they can sometimes end up as collateral damage uh, when party conflict gets intense. Uh, So finding their way between, you know, wanting to do the really, really important stuff of serving the committees, but realizing that in many cases, committees are not leaning heavily upon them. They're going to other sources of information. uh, And that so much CRS work flow today is driven by individual legislators. That's just a different model than was conceived in the early 70s. So that's that's tricky. I think um, certainly the digital revolution through the uh, agency, a real curveball. Um, you know, when I started there in 2003, the internet was still pretty young. Um, cell phones were still pretty primitive. And, you know, the agency at the time couldn't see around the corner. A lot of people couldn't see around the corner, let's be honest. And they were very anchored on the kind of old way of like, let's, you know, let's stick with doing white papers. And, you know, Congress can physically come over and get copies of our white papers, or we can send them there to Congress through interoffice mail. Uh, then boom, the digital, digital revolution happens and everything changes. A 30-page white paper doesn't look good on a BlackBerry. Uh, <laughs> doesn't look good on a brand new spanking iPhone either. So figuring out how to be that nonpartisan reference and research service in the 21st century, adapting to the changing technologies, um, adapting to the expectation of a faster news cycle, faster responsiveness, trying to get by with fewer employees, but escalating demands from Congress. It's a lot. It's a lot for the agency to tackle. What does the future look like for CRS? Well, certainly to a degree, 
it looks like the past. They serve a really unique niche. Again, they are the help desk. They are the trainers. They are the nonpartisan folks that any congressional staffer can call up and get help. I got to mention here, I can't tell you how many times I've been out on the street or at a party or some parent gathering. And I mentioned that I used to work at CRS and a former staffer who I'm talking to is like, oh my God, you did? CRS saved me so many times. What did they mean by that? What they meant was that their boss dropped a policy question or a political question in their lap that they had no clue what the answer was. And they went to CRS and they found an expert who was able to kind of bone them up uh, on the basics very quickly so that they could do their job and not get in trouble with their boss. I don't think that's going to change. Our legislature is always going to be an amateur legislature. There's always going to be questions uh, and they're always going to need experts that they can trust. People who they know don't have a skin in the game and who are not trying to manipulate them. So that'll stay the same. What's going to change? Well, certainly the ongoing Internet revolution, that's changing. Uh, Certainly the structure of Congress, whether it continues to be heavily a leadership driven enterprise, whether it continues to be intensely polarized, we don't know. And CRS has to be responsive to that environment. It has to deal with that. That's its operating context. I'm not sure either what's going to happen when we talk about greater technological developments like AI. I mean, we're early on in AI and already we're seeing signs that AI can produce primer type materials. And that prompts the question of, is that going to like be taken over uh, or taken away from CRS analysts? You might have just AI uh, machines writing short primer reports. Is that the future? Does that mean CRS's mission will shift? I don't know. I'd also say that as one last factor that's kind of an unknown. How is the agency going to compete for legislators' attention and staff attention in the 21st century? Uh, again, it has the great advantage of being nonpartisan and wholly funded by Congress. Nothing else out there has that. But 1970, when CRS started, there were just a few think tanks in town. There were a modest number of organizations who were doing analytical work. Now, you know, any staffer can Google and find all sorts of information and analyses on a whole range of topics. There's competition out there to supply Congress uh, with information and analysis. And the question is, is can CRS find its niche and not lose market share uh, to the private sector? We'll see. All right, Kevin, thank you for telling us what the Congressional Research Service is and what it does. Jay Hunt, thank you for sitting in for me. Thank you for listening to Understanding Congress, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jay Hun Lee and hosted by Kevin Kosar. You can subscribe to Understanding Congress via Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and tune in. We hope you will share this podcast with others and tell us what you think about it by posting your thoughts and questions on Twitter and tagging at AEI. Once again, thank you for listening and have a great day.